1: ducks and quail yeah ducks and quail because august is dwindling fast and the september opens the bird seasons with rough grouse blue grouse here in idaho morning doves soon it will be duck season we're going to be in full swing and i am getting excited so i brought some friends along with me hey welcome everyone This is Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Glad to have you. Once again, we're going to answer questions from folks who've written in. I pulled a few off um, from personal questions, and the team, of course, are going to throw some at me that I haven't seen before. So first of all, I want to answer Andrew from Australia. You know, we've got a lot of folks from Australia who write in, and I really enjoy visiting with these folks because I hunted Australia just one time but man, was it fun. They've got those big Asian water buffalo that they imported down there way back when and all sorts of other crazy critters that don't really belong there, but they do a lot of uh, hunting to try to control those populations. So those guys know their shooting and their guns and their ballistics and all the rest of it. Always great to hear from them. And they give me good advice sometimes too. And this might be one of them. Andrew says, hey, Ron, I've got a question from Australia. Gun blue 490. YouTube site with an older gentleman who knows his stuff. GunBlue 490 stated that the USA developed a 3003 in 1903 off of the German 757 Mauser case specifications, basically making it longer. And then they developed a 30 6 off of that, and later the 270 Winchester off of the 303 case, making the 30 6 and the 270 Winchester siblings. Is this true? Yes. Trust GunBlue. This is true. <laughs> That's pretty much exactly how it went. You know, it was the 757 Mauser that inspired Teddy Roosevelt and a bunch of other military folks of ours after the Spanish-American War. The Spanish Army was using a early Mauser bold-action rifle, the Model 93, and that was chambered for the 757, which Mauser put together in the year, just the year before in 92. And then this war in Cuba is where Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders went. And they were having trouble because the 757s shot so far and fast and flat. And we were using, what, forty five seventies, plunk, out of range, and we were getting hammered. So they both appreciated the Mauser with its bold action and fast cycling, as well as that little cartridge. So they thought, we need to upgrade. Oh, we were also using the 30-40 Craig then which is a little closer to a modern cartridge than the 4570 but we just didn't really have anything to measure up to this new incredibly performing rifle and cartridge so yes we looked at that 757 and that of course is a product of the 857 Mauser which the German army'd been using for a while and we decided to lengthen it and change it to a 30 caliber i don't know exactly why they wanted to go to 30 but it's real similar. So if you look at the dimensions on the case, uh, the neck and the head, or not the neck, but the head and the rim of a 757, same numbers as the .30-06, same numbers as the 270. So we made the 3003 in 1903 with a 220-grain round-nose bullet on it, too slow, weren't getting that flat trajectory. They realized, we've got to go to the Spitzers and lighter weight. So they went with 150. They increased the velocity up there around 28, 2900 feet per second, and they had something. They changed it a little bit. All they did was shave a smidgen off of the neck, and then they made it the 30 out six shooting 150 grain bullet in 1906. Very few of the 3003s were actually made, and the ones that they did make, they rechambered them to 30 out six, I believe. And then the 270 was created by Winchester. They just looked at that 30 out six and said, Hey, let's make this thing go a little faster, shoot a little flatter, be a little easier to handle for deer and such. 130 grain bullet might be just about optimum. Let's make one and call it the 270 Winchester. It's just 30 out six neck down. A little bit of difference in some of the shape and the length and stuff, but both are long actions or standard length actions. And yeah, that's where it came from. And that's also where the 25-06 came from. The 338-06. The 35 Whalen was a 30-06 necked up. There was a 375 Whalen. I think there was even a 416 Whalen. That never became a commercial option, but oh, what others? 280 Remington. Just a lot of them. You take that 30-06 case and you reshape it a smidgen, neck it up and down, and you've got other cartridges. So, yeah, it's a producer. It's even. The what would you call it? The great grandmother of the 308 family. You shorten that 30 out six case and you've got the 308 and then 708 to the 260 to 243, just all kinds of them. So I always say with cartridges, it's a family affair. Now this one is Mark, and Mark asks, um, hey Ron, maybe you've covered this before, but which would you prefer for hunting? the 65 PRC or the 68 Western. <laughs> now these are both a couple of new cartridges that are following the trend which is short fat cartridge, 30 degree shoulder roughly, um, pretty straight walled, all the modern features and designed to chamber in rifles with long throats to maximize use of those long high efficient bullets. Now a lot of people will say, "Oh, there's you're just making too much out of this BC business." And that's really true if you're shooting only out to, say, 300 yards. The old style will do just fine. There's not much difference in your drops and your drifts. But you start going a little farther than that, and there is. And these days, more riflemen are target shooting than they are hunting. I saw some stats the other day, and it was something like twice as many people buy a new rifle for target shooting than do for hunting. So that tells us something. That explains why so many people are interested in these long, sleek, high BC bullets. So the 6.5 PRC optimizes that. It's sort of an improvement over the 6.5 Creedmoor, which became really popular until people realized it's really fun to shoot, but it doesn't have as much horsepower as I would like. So the 6.5 PRC increased the size of the powder volume in there, and that allows it to shoot about like a 270 Winchester. But you've got the narrower bullets and the longer bullets in a fast-twist barrel, increased performance over the 270 downrange, say, after 300 yards. And that's why that's become popular. The 6.8 Western is along the same lines. Winchester looked at their 270 Winchester, extremely popular, but not able to handle those fast-twist bullets. Then they went to the 270 WSM, which came out in about 2000, 2001, and that is a great little cartridge, uh, puts about 200, 300 feet per second, more velocity on the same 270 bullets, but doesn't handle those high long, high BC bullets either. Because back in those days, they still weren't doing those high long bullets, high BC bullets. So rather than change the twist rate on the 270 S M s and get people confused, perhaps, They thought, let's just tweak this case and make it the 6.8 Western, a completely different name so people don't confuse the two. And that's always a problem. So that happens. So they maximized the 270 the same way that the 6.5 PRC maximizes the 6.5 format short, fat case, lots of throat room, fast twist barrel, long bullets. So now the 6.8 is shooting bullets as heavy as 175 grains. And that's getting out there. So, which one would I prefer for hunting? I really don't have a preference for deer hunting. If I were going to be looking at primarily elk, moose, and bears um, out west especially, I'd probably opt for the 6.8 western just because it gives you that little bit heavier bullet. And you always get a, a potential at least for a little better penetration, everything else being equal, the construction of the bullet and such. So that's the way I would look at it. If I were purely going to be Hunting deer-sized animals, 6.5 PRC, great cartridge. And it'll do the job on elk, and I, I know it'll do it on moose too. But if you've got that option, why not go to the little bit wider bullet, a little bit heavier bullet. The BCs on the top end on both of those are about the same. So I think I'd go with the 6.8 Western. Don't even mention that I have a 6.5 PRC. <laughs> and I don't have a 6.8 a Western yet. But I've borrowed a couple and had some really good shoots with them. So you can't go wrong either way. But that's the way I think of it. Now, let's go to the questions that the team has pulled up for me that I haven't seen yet. See if you can stump the chump. We might even have some corrections in here. I'm not sure. Okay. This is ah something about cleaning guns from Bradbow. Bradbow asks, as a vet and a hunter, I've always cleaned my guns after shooting or if I was stuck out in some nasty weather, but so many guys say that I'm wasting my time cleaning my gun after every use. Do you clean yours every time? I do not. Bradbow, here is the way I think on this one, even though the old school was clean those guns and keep them in perfect condition, blah, blah, blah. That's great, um, but it may be overkill. If I go out to the bench on a calm, calm a warm day, no moisture or anything like that, and I shoot a few times, or even if I shoot forty times, and my rifle is still grouping well, I really don't need to clean anything except for fingerprints and such off of the exterior metal if I have a blue barrel to prevent rusting. If it's a moist day, cleaning the inside of the barrel and oiling it lightly to prevent rust from building up is always, always recommended. But this this idea that if you just fire one or a few shots through your gun, you need to completely clean it, is overdone. Because our firearms are designed to go dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of rounds. And I've taken some shotguns well up into the hundreds of rounds, even into a thousand one time on a dove shoot without cleaning it. And the auto-loading rifle was still functioning perfectly. So other than function and accuracy uh, and and maximizing the life of your rifle. I don't know why you need to clean it. Certainly not the bore, as long as it's not rusting internally. And then you keep the rust off the external parts. And so many firearms these days are coated, Cerakoting and Marine Coat and all these different finishes that they don't even rust externally. So there's no need to clean them that way. Now, if you get a lot of dirt and stuff on, I'm sure you want to clean that off. And you want to clean for function, especially if there's dirt in the action. Uh, But one of the problems with too much cleaning, if you don't do it right, is you wear on those parts as you clean to a degree, but you also could get gunk on it by oil, over-oiling and greasing. You know, I like to put a little dab of grease, and I mean tiny, behind my lugs in the action, so they're turning in, and the camming surfaces, this is where all the tension is, steel on steel. You want to keep those greased, and then a light coating of oil A lot of guys now are going to the dry lubricants so they don't even have oil outside. Then you're not attracting dirt to the firearm. Get a lot of dirt in the action and it's going to work like sandpaper. It's going to wear things more quickly. That's a good reason to keep things clean. So that's my take on it. It's not absolute. And I'm sure other people have some good points to make about it. If you have any excellent points to be made about cleaning more or less, boy, send them in and we'll report on it. But that's kind of been my... Discovery over the years. Things seem to work out pretty well that way. Scott, bird season is coming up here soon. Ah, Didn't I tell you? Quail ducks, bird season's coming up. And you had a video once that teased a comparison among the shot shell ballistics. Can you speak more on that? Oh boy. Shot shell ballistics. I could go on and on and on about this one. Let's see if I can condense it. Shotgun ballistics has more to do with the volume of shot than, than the trajectory. A lot of people think, oh, you need a bigger, more powerful shotgun. You want a 12 gauge or even a 10 gauge, but it doesn't really work that way because a 20 gauge and 16 gauge and even a 28 gauge can shoot as fast as a 12 gauge and they can shoot the same size pellets. Well, if you have a number six pellet going at 1,250 feet per second, it doesn't matter if it came out of a 12 gauge or a 28 gauge. It's still the same weight pellet, has the same ballistics efficiency or inefficiency. And uh the only advantage you get with the 12 gauge is more pellets. So think in terms of matching your velocities, you're getting just as much energy in each pellet. But the size of the pellet increases and you'll get more efficiency from the bigger bores, the 12 gauge, because you've got more pellets in there, and that means probably going to hit your target a little more easily if you're putting 250 pellets down range instead of 150 there are going to be smaller gaps between the pellets at different distances so you extend your range slightly that way and it's usually five to ten yard increase uh, as you go up in your gauge sizes so small gauge 28 three quarters of an ounce of shot step up to a 20 gauge an ounce of shot obviously there are magnum versions you can go up and down an eighth of a ounce or so. 16 gauge, not a lot shooting anymore, but the kind of the standard was one and an eighth. I think there are a few Magnums at one and a quarter. 12 gauge was one and a quarter is kind of the standard. It used to be one and an eighth ounce of shot. Go up to a mini Magnum at one and a half ounce and variations on those themes. But yeah, I think you can begin to see the pattern here. You just go up an eighth or a quarter of an ounce of shot and you increase the reach because you've got more pellets. And as they spread, moving down range, There are fewer gaps between the pellets that the bird could fly through to escape. That's basically the way shot shell ballistics all come together. Now you have to throw chokes in there because that makes the big difference. And a choke, of course, is a constriction at the muzzle that squeezes the shot down so it doesn't flare out in such a big cone right away. It gets further down range as it gradually opens and opens and opens. And the reason those things open is because of the variable flight characteristics of the pellets they're not perfectly round so the wind is going to plane a little bit on a rough side or a flat side and it's going to direct that pellet off from the straight line so you're never going to put all of your pellets straight down they're going to flare out like that but that's great because it makes it a lot easier to hit a flying bird if you've got a 30 inch spread of pellets instead of a six inch spread <laughs> so i i hope that answered your question um, Let me read it one more time. Yeah, that's pretty much, I think, what you're asking, Scott. If I didn't hit it, come back at me, but that's basically what you're up against. If you just look at the velocities that should be listed on the box, regardless of the gauge, you should know if you're shooting those things at 1,200 feet per second, or 14, or gosh, some of them are even up as fast as 1,700 on some of the steel shot lighter loads, but If the velocities are the same and the pellet diameter and material are the same, whether it's tungsten, lead, bismuth, or steel, um, it really doesn't matter what the gauge is, except for you're going to get a little increased range out of that load because the heavier doses of pellets are going to make that difference. All right. Great question, Scott. Hey, the RSO store has been a project the team's been working on for quite some time, and it is live. Now, the store is currently selling branded merchandise like caps and T-shirts and coffee mugs, but also some photographic prints and even some pillows with an elk on it. Some fun stuff. Later, we might add a few more practical things. But for now, check out the Ron Spomer Outdoors store. And if you're an RSO TV member, you get 15% off of everything all the time. So check the link below and let us know what you think of RSO's new store. This one is from Pierre or Pierre. I guess (laughs) I grew up in South Dakota where the capital city is Pierre and it's spelled like the French Pierre, but no South Dakota cowboy is going to go around saying Pierre. (laughs) So it's Pierre, but I'll bet you this gentleman's name is Pierre, unless he's from pure South Dakota. At any rate, he asks what kind of bullet would still mushroom well at subsonic velocities? That is suggests a pretty soft bullet An all lead bullet. Pure lead is really pretty soft, but also you can put a hollow in the nose to increase the, uh, the expansion. And what the hollow does is as soon as that bullet enters soft tissue, moist tissue, like vegetables as well as meat. But you know, if there's water in there, you get a hydraulic pressure that opens things up. So if there's a deep cavity in the nose, The hydraulic pressure gets in there and it's got to go someplace and the bullet's still driving forward to push and it expands more or it even breaks up. And that's one of the challenges that bullet makers have, of course, is having a soft bullet that opens nicely to expand and have more surface area to damage the vital organs, which you need to do, but not break up into little pieces so that they stop. If it stays in one piece, it maintains momentum from all that mass behind the nose. So you get a nice expanded nose and a lot of bullet behind that nose. To continue driving, you get the best of both worlds. So uh, if you're only, I mean, subsonic means that your muzzle velocity is at roughly 1,100 feet per second, depending on sea level or elevation and stuff. So there's the speed of sound. If you're subsonic, you're underneath that velocity. And most of us are looking at hunting rifles that are shooting 2,500 feet to 3,500 feet per second. Yikes, big difference. So a bullet at that velocity is going to expand probably too much. So yeah, you do need to go to a lighter bullet, a hollow point bullet, um, a thinly jacketed bullet and a soft lead core, pure lead core, no hardening of the lead by putting zinc in it or anything or anemone. That's what they put in. Zinc is what they put on the jackets for uh, the copper with a little bit of zinc makes for the jacket material called gilding metal. Um, Yeah, I've, basically what you need to know is look for those soft bullets. Now, someone named Silver Jack asks, trying to get a foothold into hunting and how to hunt with a rifle. 23 years old, I find it difficult to find my footing in this practice. <laughs> so, any suggestions? Okay, Silver Jack is new to the game, folks. And... This brings up an important point. Every once in a while, some of you guys will say, boy, that's such an obvious thing you'd mentioned there. Everybody knows how to sight their rifle, or everybody knows a thirty out 6 can do it. No, everybody doesn't know because everybody has to start from scratch. I remember when I was born, I didn't know anything. (laughs) I had to learn it the same as everyone else. So I, I always recommend that we welcome new shooters by not putting them down and saying, everybody already knows that. No, they don't. They're interested. They want to know. Our job is to instruct them friendly, open, really help them out. That's the way to do it. So Silver Jack, welcome to the club here. I think you are going to love hunting and shooting. Most of us who are watching this do or listening to this, but we will be happy to help you out. Find obviously the the easiest way is to find a mentor someone who can help you out. You might ask at a local gun store. You might join a local sporting group of some kind. You can look to the national groups like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited. There are just a bunch of them out there. National Shooting Sports Foundation. That's a good one. Go to their website. They've got a lot of instructional videos and basic how-to stuff. So there are a lot of resources out there. And the trick though is to have those vetted. You don't want to just get online and start looking at anything and everything and trusting all of it. There are a lot of brilliant ballisticians and hunters and online with various YouTube channels and Facebook pages and all the usual stuff, but then there's a lot of charlatans out there who're just trying to make a buck, out, trying to sell you something. So you have to be careful. You know, in the old days when we had just a very few magazines like Field & Stream Sports of Field, Outdoor Life, Peterson's Hunting Magazine, they could pick Some of the experts in the country to be their gun writers or their hunting editors and stuff like that. So they were vetted. They weren't just flying off with crazy ideas. They really knew their stuff. It's a little harder to find it on the web now. Until you know something, you can't judge whether a guy's snowing you or not. So be a little suspicious of that. Generally, though, any books, any outdoor books on guns and hunting and ballistics and that are pretty well vetted. They usually are written by. Experts or someone close to it. You, you may find some discrepancies because one guy's opinion of the 270 might be the opposite of the other guy's. You kind of have to balance some of that stuff. Same with hunting advice. You know, one guy might say, go hunting naked, and this guy says you have to be completely covered in scent removing sprays and camouflage and all the rest. But those are just little tweaks. Take it all with a grain of salt, um, consider it, see if it makes any practical sense, and check a lot of different sources. Um, I like to think that this one is good. Ron Spomer Outdoors, the website. We've got a lot of written material and blogs with data and numbers and things that explain how ballistics work, how firearms work. And then there's some videos on hunting. I want to do more how-to stuff. I just find that there are so many videos on hunting out there already, but every once in a while, someone will write in and say, hey, Ron, can you give me some tips on pheasants and deer and all the rest of it? And since I have done this stuff for over 50 years, I do have some practical experience that might translate pretty well. So I'm going to try to do some more videos on hunting how-tos and tactics. Um, write in if you'd like to see some of that stuff. I mean, I was, I was considering doing a video series on becoming a whitetail hunter, for instance, in which we could go from scratch all the way through. So you have to get a firearm. You're going to get a bow or a rifle or a handgun or a, sh- or a shotgun, cover that kind of stuff. and then behavior of deer and hunting tactics, stalking and glassing and tracking and waiting in a blind. And oh, man, there's just all sorts of stuff to cover. So if you're interested in something like that, let me know and maybe we'll put it together this winter. All right, Jack. Hey, good luck with you there, partner. Glad to have you on board. I hope you find yourself a good mentor who can really show you how it's done and done right. I think this might be our last question. This is from T R G who asks, what is the lowest velocity your bullets will expand at? At which velocity will your bullets still expand? That's a good question that depends on the bullet. Who made that bullet? Did they make it to expand at high velocity or low velocity? So if you're looking at a hard bullet with a thick jacket, probably not going to expand at a low velocity. What's hard? Well, hardened lead. Uh, a thick copper jacket around the hardened lead. Uh, obviously, a full metal jacket's not going to expand because it's completely encased in that gilding metal or copper jacket, so you can't get expansion. A hollow point is going to expand more. Some of the polymer tip bullets are kind of designed so that that polymer tip gets back into the lead and begins to open it up. Some bullets will tumble, so there's lots of things going on. And all of it determines at what velocity or minimum velocity you can get some expansion. And then there are degrees of expansion. Years ago, my wife shot a buffalo in uh, Mozambique with 375 H&H 300 grain triple shock. I can't remember if it was tipped or otherwise, but they're about the same for expansion. And this buffalo was out there a little bit farther than we usually shoot buffalo, but we didn't have any strong desire to crawl within spitting distance of this big herd. (laughs) So when we came out of the reeds and had a clear shot at this bullet, what we estimated was 125 yards, you put that bullet through the lungs and it's going to cause a problem. So she did that and the buffalo tipped right over. We found the bullet against the hide on the opposite shoulder and it was just starting to open. You know, it opened probably very little more than the actual diameter of the bullet. So that suggested that the velocity had slowed enough that you weren't getting maximum expansion. That bullet was probably designed to open up under 70 yards or ideally at 50 yards or something. But then I know there are bullets in, the say, the Barnes line that are designed specifically to open well at 30, 30 velocities. And you're looking at maybe 2,200 feet per second muzzle velocity. By the time you get to 100 yards, you're well under that. So you've got to open the... The neck or the throat, uh, neither one of those, sorry. <laughs> the nose of the bullet, the cavity, you've got to make it wider and deeper so the hydraulics open it up more easily at lower velocities. So go to the manufacturer of your bullet. They ought to have somewhere on their website the uh, sort of the minimum number. Our bullets are designed to perform adequately or ideally at velocities of 3000 down to. 1800 or 1600. Most of them seem to fall into that 1800 feet per second velocity range. So that's a good benchmark for a starter, but I would definitely check it out. And then the easiest solution is to not shoot anything that's so far away that you're going to have that problem. (laughs) If you stay within 300 yards, I think they're pretty much all going to work. But again, then it depends on the rifle you're shooting. If you're shooting a Magnum that's blowing that bullet out 300 feet per second faster than a standard, obviously there's going to be some differences in the distances at which you're going to get good expansion. Worth considering. And there are some ballistic programs out there, the the kind you can get on your laptop as well as on your phone, that will give those rough numbers for a bullet. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it suggests that your typical bullet that, starts to open up at about 1,800 feet per second, it will tell you on your load data. Now that you're out at this distance, you're probably not going to have good terminal performance with that bullet. So might might find something there. Well, those are the questions for now, guys. Uh, once again, we've come to the end of another Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. I hope I've answered the questions properly and uh, made a little bit of sense to you guys. If not, write in, straighten me out happy to report on that we always appreciate people keeping my nose to the grindstone as well as my brain on topic <laughs> not always easy in fact i think it's time for lunch the way things are feeling right now hey thanks for listening in folks uh once again we appreciate all the support we get from you guys like this channel and all the rest of the stuff we do at ronspomeroutdoors.com. and a special thank you to our patrons we really couldn't do this without your support thanks for joining us on honest and shoot straight